Most of us have secrets that we don't want others to know about. How's that for a start to a sermon? Uh, Truth be told, that's the fact of the matter for most of us. We have a secret, a couple secrets, a few secrets, many secrets that we don't want others uh, to know about. Now, don't worry, we're not (laughs) passing around the microphone or anything like that today. Um, We're not going to ask you to divulge anything uh, publicly. Uh, Public shaming is a poor motivation for Christian growth. But we are going to um, do something that's going to reveal to you some secrets about some folks that some of you know well, some of you may not know well. Uh, A number of us on staff have some secrets we're going to reveal today. And uh, you've chosen a good Sunday to be here. You've chosen a good Sunday to be here because you get to participate today in the Staff Secrets Game. Come on out, guys. Yes. We're going to participate today in the Staff Secrets game. We're going to have staff here, six of us, that are going to stand up here and hold a secret that is um, going to be revealed to you in just a moment here. We'll explain these to you. And uh, we've allowed, actually, Cecil and Nancy and Carrie, our our housekeeping and financial and... uh, who am I missing, facility staff, to get out of the public shaming today. So it's just going to be us six. So we've chosen a willing contestant among us who uh, is going to have 60 seconds to match each of these six secrets with the corresponding staff member. So today we've asked Mike Schubert if you would come on down. That's awesome. First service was David Scott. He didn't quite do that. That was, that was nice. We are going to give you 60 seconds to match each story with a corresponding staff member, and I'm going to tell you what these are, and they're going to be placed in their hands in a random order that does not correspond. You have 60 seconds to match the correct secret with the correct staff member, and I'm going to tell you all what these secrets are so that we're all on the same page. The first is the story of this staff member who in fifth grade was so nervous about asking to go to the bathroom that this uh, staff member peed in his or her pants. We're going to give that to you, Bethann. This staff member, uh, still when leaving the house, has to have his or her uh, own pillow in order to fall asleep when they leave the house. We're going to give that one to you, Allison. This person, believe it or not, True story, first grade, uh, accidentally brought an extra pair of underwear that showed up at the wrong time during show and tell. And from that day forward, this person was nicknamed Spare Pair of Underwear. (laughs) You get that one, Tom. True story, this person for almost two years, not quite exclusively, but almost exclusively for two years, ate nothing but Briar's Butter Pecan Ice Cream. True story. This person uh, is, slash perhaps was today, uh, a Def Leppard, closet Def Leppard fan. You're going to get that one. No, you're getting this one. 
Oops. <laughs> That's going to be me, uh, which gives you some help because this is, is going to be impossible. Uh, this person, truth be known, bought a Clay Aiken CD. So that's you. <laughs> that's your hint. When you think you're correct, hit that buzzer and we'll let you know how many correct you have of the six, okay? All right, are we ready? You've got 60 seconds. Go for it. No. Zero. Zero. <laughs> that was a quick 60 seconds. Thank you for playing, Mr. Schubert. Uh, party gift is going to be a play agency. Flyers for two years. Allison Stolenmeyer. Closet Def Leppard fan. Beth and Lieber. In order to fall asleep. Tommy, fifth grade, peed in his pants. You can now call Chris spare pair of underwear Carlson. And yes, it is true. I actually purchased a Clay Aiken CD. <laughs> Thanks a lot, guys. Just take them, set them down. <clears throat> Didn't expect that today, did you? By the way, it would have been the same door prize, win or lose, Clay Aiken CD. We all have secrets, truth be known. Some of them are relatively innocuous, not a big deal, not something you should be ashamed about. Like I stole a little plastic missile from a robot at Sears in Johnson City 35 years ago and had to go back and tell the manager. I mean, I, I'm okay telling you that. I'm okay telling you that. It's not a big deal. I'm even okay telling you about my grandfather from about six generations back, who when he was, when he was on his deathbed, a whole train of a few kids from a local family were wheeled in to say goodbye to him because, I mean, I'm okay telling you even that. Because, you know, the, the guilty parties are either dead or it's not a big deal. It's rather unimportant that you know that I stole a little plastic missile. My mom made me go back and I cried before the manager. Don't worry. Now, I don't mind telling you those kinds of things because they're small potatoes and the, the guilty parties are not with us or don't care. But what if about, what if the secrets... What if the secrets that we were ashamed about were things we were being asked to confess to somebody, to divulge to somebody, to have the kind of context of a relationship where we could confess those kinds of things uh, to one another? What if it were things like, and I'm not suggesting this for you, but what if it were things as, as shameful as adultery or deceit, cover-up, even murder, uh, those are the things that were part of David's life in Second Samuel 11 and 12, uh, Psalm 51. They were the things that he was keeping secret. And what we're going to see today in the life of King David is, is that we think we gain 
we think we gain by hiding, uh, but we actually lose. We actually lose because, because hiding secrets, hiding sin, can be sort of like a, a petri dish for our hearts. It's a, it's a place where the evil one can work in us and deceive us. We become a slave to slave to hiding those things. It affects our behavior, the way we talk, the way we act. That's what happens when you hide, when you hide sin in your life. And, and friends, we're called to a, a very high calling as the people of God. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Then it says, That you may be healed. That's a hard lesson for us. It's a hard lesson for us because it cuts right to the heart. We don't like to be people who reveal our weakness to one another. In fact, in fact, we put a lot of, a lot of effort into maintaining the opposite kind of views of one another, don't we? The problem, of course, is when we do that, we keep ourselves from experiencing the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy that God has available for us. And we'll see that in the life of King David today. And what we'll see in the life of King David is that life is always better in the light. What was true of King David is true for us. Life is always better in the light because when we live in the light, we unlock the freedom of forgiveness. We'll read that in the story of David today, but jump in with me as we see where the sin led him in 2 Samuel 11. We'll start in verse 1 here, 2 Samuel 11. Got lots of straight-up Bible content to get to here, so, uh, so let's boogie together. 2 Samuel 11, 1 through, uh, 1 through 5 and following here. It says this, verse 1, about David's sin. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab. Now Joab is his military right-hand man, his leader of the army. He sent Joab and his servants with him, with Joab, and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. So the text is already setting the scene for us here. He's saying, uh, first, uh, Second Samuel here is saying that everybody's out there fighting the battle, kicking the tail of the bad guys, but... And here's the kicker. David remained at Jerusalem. Now, this is significant stuff that it's already telling us here in the first verse here. David's supposed to be off at war, but he's not. Now, we're not told why, because apparently it doesn't matter a whole lot. But the clear implication is that David has a job to do. David has a job to do, and he's not doing it. Now, think, think about that for a second. If David, if David had been doing what he was supposed to be doing, out at battle. <laughs> Maybe he would have avoided what we're about to read about. Like maybe, maybe if David had been out on mission doing what God called him to do, it says all Israel was in this battle. Yet David remained at Jerusalem. He had too much time on his hand. This was, this was a time in Israel's history when the kingdom was united, the borders were secure, they were prospering, and David was well-established Firmly established and well-loved as king. <laughs> but listen, uh, comma, American Christians, myself included. Prosperity can lull you to sleep and render you defenseless. 
hapless, not effective, off mission. If you're not intentional about the mission. So, so here's David, like most American Christians, sitting on his rear eating donuts, playing video games, finding ways to sin. And yes, I'm implying that if you have a mission, it is somewhat an antidote to having the time to sit around and play video games all day. And listen, just because you're paying off your mortgage and you have two point whatever kids doesn't mean you're on mission. It may mean you're keeping up with the Joneses. It may mean that on the face of it, people think, ah, oh, successful, meaningful person. You may have the most amazing job ever. You may be going up the, the corporate ladder in ways that make you feel good and provide for your family and yet be exactly in the same place where David is. Missionless David. Prosperity can lull you to sleep and render you defenseless. The implication is that David has a job to do and he's not doing it. So I, don't worry, I don't have much more in the way of rants today. Uh, but this is one that just plain aggravates the bejeebers out of me personally. We are the richest, most influential, most resourced country in the history of the, pl- the planet. And a whole bunch of us are like David, sitting there on couches playing video games. When there's a, when there's a whole world of lost people who don't know Jesus. Now, now you may think I'm stretching verse 1 too far. I don't think so. I think the text is telling us David has a mission. And he's sitting in the temple, fat and happy, unaware that there are people out there in a battle that he's supposed to be a part of. So that's sort of the the, the tone of what the text is telling us here in the transition from verses 1 to 2. So with that that in mind, look at verse 2. So verse 1 is a prelude, sets a scene for verse 2. It happened, it just so happened, Scripture is so good. It just so happened, late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch. See, I told you he was playing video games. When David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one, doesn't matter who, what matters is what the person said. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? The report back in the form of a question is interesting. Isn't this Uriah's wife? You know, Uriah's wife? David is so in lust, he misses the signal God had given him here from those around him. Another whole sermon there. Uriah was one of David's mighty men. He knows Uriah. He knows Uriah's wife. Uriah's a big-time stud in, in David's special forces. So David knew Uriah, and the one who's coming back with this frames it in the form of a question like, uh, King David, you know who that is. So Mr. Missionless Donut-Eating David, who gets what's he, what he wants because he's king, verse 4, David sent messengers. He's clearly in lust, so he sends messengers. In other words, he doesn't even really care that those around him know what he's doing. That's how 
in lust he is. Sin makes you stupid. So verse 4, David sent messengers and took her and she came to him. The text implies clearly David is mostly at fault, wielding his power as king in inappropriate ways, but, but she came on his offer. So there is, in a sense, some two-way street stuff going on here. So she and David both knew it was wrong, took her and she came to him, and he lay with her. It says now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness, meaning she was in the middle of her menstrual cycle. So the chances of her getting pregnant were uh, obviously higher. <laughs> Thank you. First service was like, hey. So then she returned to the house and the woman conceived and she sent and told David, I'm pregnant. At which point David goes, oh no. And immediately, because the text in the very next verse tells us about the cover up. Immediately, David begins to cover it up. It says, so David sent word to Joab. Joab is David's military commander again. Sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite which is weird, and I'll tell you why in just a second. So Joab sent Uriah to David, and when Uriah came to him, verse 7, David asked how Joab was doing out on the field and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Hey, yeah, so uh, Uriah, how's it going? At, At which point Uriah, one of David's mighty men, a leader on the field of battle, there are only 30 of these these mighty men of David here, Uriah thinks, you brought me here for this. You just want me to tell you about how, well, I guess it's going fine. There are people called messengers who for the express purpose of coming back from battle to give a report about how it's going were not being utilized by David when he could have. And most likely were already coming back and forth on a regular basis, giving him reports from the field. And he sends for Uriah, and Uriah goes, It's fine. Why am I here? (laughs) So the cover-up is already in play here in this awkward moment. Uriah is probably sitting there thinking, "Uh, Yeah, it's going well, King David. How are the donuts? And it continues to get even weirder. Look at verse 8. So David said to Uriah, Hey, go down to your house and wash your feet. Uh, He is implying here that Uriah should go home, that Uriah should go home, kick up his feet, and enjoy some of his wife's hospitality if you're tracking. So Uriah went out of the king's house, verse 8, and there followed him a present from the king. We don't know what the present is. It was probably food and wine, something like that. Whatever it was, it was a gift designed that, uh, to get him and his wife for Uriah and Bathsheba to go and uh, enjoy one another's hospitality, to enjoy some time alone, and to sort of help set the scene. So part of the cover-up is this sending of this present. And uh, look what happens here. Look what Uriah does. Verse 9. <laughs> But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. David's cover-up plan is not working well. And it's being foiled by Uriah being a man of integrity. Which is interesting. God, God gives signs along the way. If you're listening, if you're looking, if you're seeing. David's not. 
David's not. Multiple times, Uriah the Hittite, Uriah the Gentile. The text says Uriah the Hittite time and again to emphasize. King David, Jew, should know better. Uriah the Hittite, Gentile. David doesn't notice the signs. When they told David that Uriah, verse 10, when they told David that Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Dude, what is wrong with you? You've been off at war. Go home to your wife. That's not literally what it says. Verse 10 actually says, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? But functionally, David isn't just saying, You've got my carte blanche to do that. David now is questioning his manhood. He's he's bringing the heat on a little more to Uriah saying, Dude, are you a man? Go home to your wife. He's doing everything he can for the cover-up to be effective. But look at Uriah's response again. Doggone integrity. Keeps getting in the way of the cover-up. Verse 11. Uriah said to David, listen, this is, this is great. The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, in tents, in temporary dwellings, not even the place they're supposed to be. And my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? This is great. As you live, this is him talking to the king, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. David's plan is unraveling. Notice how up to this point, the text sets up a strong contrast between David and Uriah. While the soldiers are off at war, missionless David is comfortably hanging around, committing adultery, playing video games, eating donuts. Yet Uriah, who is already abstaining from sexual relations because he's off at war, he comes back and says, in effect, respectfully, King David, how can I enjoy relations with my wife while the people of God are at war? He says, I'm not going to leave my post. I am on duty. (laughs) So David's plan is unraveling. The cover-up is not working. Uh, God is using the truth of the integrity of a Gentile to call into question David's behavior and the cover-up, uh, but he still doesn't hear correctly from God. He's clearly brazenly in lust. And he keeps at it. And he goes for plan B, which starts in verses 12 and 13. Pick it up there. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord. But he did not go down to his house. Well, obviously this plan doesn't work either, so David's last-ditch effort plan sets an ugly scene. This is where the hiding of the sin leads here for David. Keep reading verse 14. In the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Incredible irony here. Uriah is taking by his own hand his own death sentence. Verse 15. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. David's last ditch effort was to have Uriah killed. And this plan, quote, worked, uh, except... But it didn't just kill Uriah, it killed needlessly others around him too. This has now become mass murder. The cover-up has gotten to this place, this desperate place 
where mass murder at David's hand has happened. This is how far he went uh, to cover up his own sin. He was so obsessed, so deeply obsessed with covering up his sin, of hiding his secrets, that it took another person's life, and not just the life of Joe Schmo, but a faithful soldier who stood up in integrity, who said, I'm ready to fight, to do what's good and right. At this point, David is uh, so deeply buried in sin that he feels like his only options are lies and deceit and cover-up. Pick it up at verse 26 where we wrap up uh, the cover-up there. It says, When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and, became, and she became his wife and bore him a son. And David's mind, the cover-up is complete, but, but, this is interesting, even though Uriah was dead and Bathsheba is now technically legally his wife, at least lawfully, David's wife, God gets the last word. Look at this. But, verse 27, the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Though in David's mind the cover-up is sort of final, it's interesting here. God's not mentioned in this entire chapter. When we see his presence, we see the intimations of God saying, hey, you've got integrity all around you, David. There's no mention of God or of his presence until the very end of the text. It's sort of like the text is saying, David's cover-up is not the final word. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The scripture is suggesting that God will have the final word here. You see, this is where where sin leads people. (laughs) This is where sin sin leads in our lives. Instead of confessing our sin in a way that will give us an experience of the presence of God in forgiveness and grace and mercy, not as an abstract intellectual idea alone, but in actual practice. We keep that at arm's length and out of our experience when, when the isolation of sin takes hold in a way which, which makes us feel like our only options are to hide, to not be real with one another. When that takes place in a relationship, whether it's one-on-one in a marriage, whether it's in a community of people, when that hiding is how we have to operate, we keep ourselves from experiencing God's forgiveness. And that's where David is at this point. He became so accustomed to disguising himself that he sort of built around himself an alternate reality. See, that's what happens when we hide our sin. We build uh, sort of a, uh, an alternate reality that disconnects us from others and from God and, and, and also disconnects us from ourselves. We become so accustomed to disguising ourselves to others that in the end, we also become disguised to ourselves. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do with my life? When hiding is the norm, we cannot answer the basic questions of who we are and why we're here. That's what, that's what keeping secrets 
does to us. It obscures things so much for us that we can't answer the basic questions of our lives. This isn't just dramatic rhetorical flair or play on words. We become so disguised to ourselves that in the end, we're not sure who we are, why we're here, what we're supposed to do. When you're so busy hiding sin and pain and hurt, functionally, you you just don't have the time or the energy to do productively what God's called you to do. We see this in David's life here. David's so busy managing his sin that it took God sending the prophet Nathan to confront him. Follow along in 2 Samuel 12, 1-13 here. Most of this is confrontation here. and We're going to fly through this part of it here. But there's a hint of forgiveness at the end. The confrontation is ultimately for the purpose of God revealing himself to David so that David could experience God's forgiveness. Look at 2 Samuel 12, 1-13. The Lord sent Nathan to David. Chapter 12 starts right where chapter 11 left off. God's truth has the last word. The Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city. He begins to tell this story, this parable. There were two men in a certain city. The one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb which he had bought. And he brought it up. And it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, which would have been been traditional Jewish hospitality. You take from your flock, you provide for the traveler among you. But the rich man couldn't even be brought to do that. Instead, into verse 4 it says, He took from the poor man's lamb. He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger, verse 5, was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. Be careful, Jesus follower, going through life with a sanctimonious self-righteousness that perverts grace into something you earned. The man who has done this deserves to die. Verse 7. Nathan said to David, very simply, You are the man. Crickets. I mean, there's, there's, there's no wondering what Nathan meant here. At that moment, David knew, boom, talking about my sin. There's no wondering what David was experiencing here, what Nathan meant here. Keep reading verse 7. Thus says the Lord, this is Nathan speaking as a prophet, prophet as a spokesperson for the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, speaking to David on behalf of God, I anointed you king over Israel. And I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. 
Why have you despised the word of the Lord? To do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and will give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And here's the forgiveness, the hint of the grace and mercy of God. Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Even with bodies left in the wake of his adultery and deceit and murder. I mean, just think of the enormous tragedy that was left in the wake of David's behavior. Even with all that, David merely admits his sin before the Lord. And forgiveness becomes the way he tells his story. The truth of his own life. Forgiveness becomes the truth out of which he responds in relationship with God and with others. Even with all that, when David admits, when he confesses his sin, that's when he experiences God's grace and forgiveness. It is because of God's grace that David could write these words in Psalm 51. Just listen to Psalm 51 and let these words wash over you. David wrote this in response to Nathan the prophet confronting him. This is his prayer of confession. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done as evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Friends, when you hide, you miss out. When you hide, you miss out on the experience of God's forgiveness and mercy and grace. We have, we have a choice, just like King David did. Keep hiding or step into the light of God's grace and mercy. Keep a, attempting to manage the sin or admit that you cannot. And step into the light of God's grace and mercy and forgiveness. Life is is always better in the light. Don't listen to the lies of the culture, of the world, of others around you that perpetuate this. You must hide. 
I can't handle the real you. Take those lies and throw them out the window. Because that's not how grace operates between believers. Instead of seeking opportunities to go it alone, instead of living in hiding like our pride wants us to, instead of listening to the lies of the evil one that continue to tell you things like they don't want to hear your problems, she wouldn't care anyway, don't bother him with your issues, they don't have time to help you. Nobody really cares anyway. Those are lies from the evil one. Working to create in your heart a place where, where hiding feels like the only option. Instead of giving in to living in that kind of darkness, the call of Christ and the cross is to commit to being a part of a loving community of grace and of mercy, and of forgiveness. And the key to unlocking that is to confess. To stop hiding. To step into the light of God's freedom and His forgiveness. Because friends, God's not the one stopping you from experiencing that. Let's pray. Father, we admit to you in the quiet of this moment. that if we hear Your voice, it is the voice of freedom and release from the slavery of sin. It is the voice of boundless mercy, unending love. We ask, Lord, that You'd give us more of Your Spirit to hear more clearly and purely what You offer us. In the person of Jesus Christ, You have offered us, Lord, eternal riches beyond any we could know were it not for You coming to reveal Yourself to us in Him. Father, we love the truth that we are made righteous because You lived a perfect sinless, holy life among us in the flesh. That because of the death of Your Son Jesus on the cross would count for us to justify us and make us the status of perfect that we could never know without You. Father, that truth alone changes everything for us. Make of us people who not just in amorphous, ethereal, sort of far-off ways 
believe in our minds a truth without it being something that also is the way we interact with one another. Make of us men and women, Lord, who initiate relationships where forgiveness is what operates between us so that you would increasingly be made known in the world and so that people would look at this community of believers and say, the forgiveness of God is real. Give us the strength, Lord, and the courage to live in the kind of faith it takes for confession of sin to one another. to be part of our relationships of growth. Give us that courage and that strength. Trusting that you will use the ways we act that are in accord with what you promise. We love you, Lord. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. As we uh, come to a time around the table, we invite you to respond to...